Okay. All right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're here with another Jazz Matters podcast. Today's guest, of course, is the, the great Mr. Victor Bowen. And uh, Victor... Uh, <laughs> okay, I'll take that. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, you got a lot to work with now. We also yeah. have, of course, uh, Vaughn Coulter here with us from Jazz Beach Radio. And uh, we want everyone, before we get started, to uh, go ahead and uh, click on Yes, Jazz Matters. That'll be the website for uh, Jazz Matters, who is a nonprofit, or what is a nonprofit uh, organization, 501c3, and we do take donations. You can hit on the donation page. Also, the Jazz Matters uh, store. Uh, you can go there and buy shirts a lot like this, you know, and uh, yeah, there you go. And I see that. A lot of other, a lot of other apparel that you can get a hold of, uh, all of it is uh, right on the Jazz Matters store. And for all you hot sauce lovers, we even got Jazz Matters hot sauce. So uh, <laughs> there we are. And uh, like I said, we want you to like us, uh, subscribe to us, and uh, we're going to go ahead and get this thing started. Uh, we got here Mr. Um, Victor Boeing. And uh, Victor spent a lot of time, a, a lot of years in Detroit. And he's going to today pretty much enlighten us uh, on a lot of the behind the scene things that was happening during the Motown era. And also other uh, music uh, uh, adventures and stuff that he was a part of around the city of Detroit. So Vic, for all the people that don't know you, let them know who you are and let them know how you got in this business. Okay. Um... I started actually playing seriously when I was 13, but I actually had a, an ability with music early on, like maybe four or five years old. But um, in, I wound up in Detroit in 1964, moving from East Point, Georgia, which was a shock in itself. And um, when I got there, uh, Motown was blowing up just when my feet hit the pavement, right? So here I am coming from Georgia and I'm stepping into Motown and I didn't even know what that meant, but I was there. So elementary school, fast forward to middle school, in my neighborhood, uh, there was a band like two blocks over from where I lived. And me and a bunch of the kids in my age group, I was about 13 at the time and we started forming this little band. And I started out with a snare drum no drum set, a snare drum. And um, I met the Womats. And if, you, if you've seen the movie about, I think they call it Standing in the Shadows, the, the movie about the Funk Brothers. The uh, Funk Brothers, yeah, exactly. At, at, at that time, Ray Parker wasn't quite playing with uh, Stevie Wonder back in the day. And this was all pre-Wonder uh, Wonder Love and all this other stuff, right? So I started playing in, and then uh, by the time I graduated high school, I had a 10-piece band. And I was 17 years old. And, you know, of course, all the kids in the city at the time wanted to, you know, when we when we got grown, we was going to get them Motown jobs, you know? <laughs> so and the odd thing is, when we graduated high school, Motown moved to California. Hence, 
how I've backed into the people behind the scenes of Motown, because when they left, uh, they left a lot of the local musicians who built Motown out. If you've seen that movie, you know, Barry Gordy always said the reason why he got jazz musicians because they were more accomplished and they were better suited at dealing with some new music because jazz is constantly mm -hmm. new anyway. So that just fit right in with what they did. That was their day job. And then they were working the jazz clubs at night. So needless to say, when I, how I backed into this, I was uh, 16 years old in my sophomore or junior year in high school. I can't remember exactly which one it was, somewhere in that point. And um, I had just gotten into a uh, marching band. And one of the guys that I, when I got in there with him the year before, and uh, he had met Marcus Belgrade. I didn't know who Marcus Belgrade was. I didn't know him from Ch China, you know what I'm saying? So he came back to school after a summer break, and he was sitting second chair when he left. When he came back, he took the first chair slot from a senior. And that turned everybody head, and everybody's like, where you been the summer? What you been doing? <laughs> so there was a, a place called Metro Arts Complex. It was founded by a woman who had a dance troupe. And when Motown left the city, all of those musicians that was working at Motown that didn't go, they got involved in an after-school music program. And that's where my whole life changed. I met people like Marcus Belgrade, Sam Saunders, Harold McKinney, Jimmy Allen, Roy Brooks, all of these. These guys were jazz musicians, adult jazz musicians. I'm a teenager, right? So I'm in the rehearsal studio one day just playing by myself, you know, because I'm the new kid in the neighborhood, so I don't know what's going on, but they have rehearsal booths, so I'm in there jamming by myself. And Harold McKinney, the McKinney family is a well-known Detroit musical family. And uh, there's a whole family of them now. now I'm sure you guys have heard of Galen McKinney, who played with the group Just Jazz, all female group with Regina Carter and uh, was it Marion Hayden, Regina Carter, and Galen McKinney, and they were here in Atlanta a while back. But that's Galen McKinney is Harold McKinney's daughter, and Harold heard me playing one day, and he came into the booth and he introduced himself. So about six months to a year later, I'm in the same booth practicing. And at that time, James Jameson was in and out of Detroit because he would always come back to Detroit because when he went to California with Marvin and them, he, he, wasn't, he didn't really fit in out there. He was used to playing with the cats in Detroit. And if, if, if you know anything about Detroit music, it's on par with New York or any other other major jazz places, right? So mm -hmm. I met these people and they started teaching us all this stuff. And the only thing they asked is that we pass it along because they knew they were gonna get older and they wanted us to teach the next group of musicians behind us what they gave to us. That's the only prerequisite. And while I was doing all of this, by the time I was 19, I had a 10 piece band and uh, I was trying to get work. They had junior fraternities 
in the city of Detroit at that time. You had junior alphas, junior AKs, all of that kind of stuff. And they threw parties on the weekend. So there was a whole circuit of gigs out there for teenagers. If you were a musician, you could get to work. So I spent my whole high school years trying to crack that circuit, but never could get in because it was always a problem with the uh, uh, local number six, the musicians union, the, the union reps and the booking agents. And I never could break it. By the time I turned 19, I was I had at the 10-piece band and we were developing uh, our business skill because I was the youngest union rep at the time. And I took that position because I wanted to play so bad. And the only way I was going to get a gig is I had to have a union contract. So when I went and talked to the, the people who were throwing the gigs, they would have no choice but to deal with me, right? Because I had the power of the union behind. And that's how we broke down the circuit. And by the time I got that done, the last gig we did before I came out of that and went on to other things, there was a gig at the Community Arts Center at the Michigan State Fairground. The building held 6,000 people. And on that show, Eddie Kendricks had just released Boogie Down. I'm sure y'all remember that, that song, right? And he opened up that show and my band headlined it. And the thing I remember most about that gig is the night that after the show we get, to get paid, I went back there, man. Those kids made $13,000 in one night. In 1973. Now think about that. 1973, they made $13,000 off a sock hop at two fifty dollars a head. That's what it was like in Detroit. Because what music did for me, two things. It taught me how to be a small business owner because I was band leader. So I booked the gigs, collected the money, and paid my employees. I had no idea that it would eventually show up on the back end because I've owned my own small business for the last 25 years. But that just that's just some of the stuff that was a byproduct of that experience. But I don't know how I'm gonna tell this story in detail in an hour because there's way too much stuff in my musical career and all the people that I know. But how I found out about this thing, Ray McMurtry, Edwin, you know him. Yeah. I don't know whether you know him or not. But me and Ray was playing in the same group of kids when we were kids. And I didn't meet Ray until about 14 years old, 14 years ago here, right? We had seen each other, but we never played with each other until we got here. And I met Ray about 14 years ago, and that's how I wound up in this situation. But Detroit was, if I had this to do all over again, you know, you hear places like New York and all the other hotbeds of musicians. I would have went right back there and did exactly what I did. Even though, you know, I'm not well known to the world, but it was such a great musical experience. And it allowed me to develop myself as a musician, as opposed to be trying to copy other musicians who already had their niche in the industry. You know what I'm saying? Because one of the things they taught was, listen, you might as well give up trying to be John Coltrane and all these other people. There's already one of those. And if you want to have a long career in this music, it's better to deal with what you have. Because that's the only chance you'll ever make a name for yourself by being you. And for me, I had lots of opportunities along the way. 
when I was uh, my first son was born, I got I was one of the before Prince ever made it to everybody know who Prince because of my experience in the union. They started something called the National uh, Musicians Referral Hotline back when I was back then. And uh, when my first son was born, I get this call from Minneapolis and it says, listen. Uh, we heard a lot about you. And at first I thought it was a crank call, right? Because back, you know, you didn't have cell phones, landline. I was like, are you kidding? No, man, we we heard about you from local number six. I said, really? Are you serious? Then they said, well, you know, in, in Minneapolis right now, you know, this is about to blow up. And I heard them talk about this guy named Prince, but I didn't know who was. <laughs> What's a Prince to me? I'm in Detroit. I don't nobody know who Prince is. And because I just got married and my oldest son was born, I decided, nah, I'm going to stay here and at least make sure my son knows my name before I get on the road and be a gypsy, if you know what I'm saying, you know. So, of course, that didn't work out either. But those are the kind of things that I was exposed to just because I met those people and learned enough about the music business to where I'm still playing this day 50 years later. And... I would like to tell the story and try to present it the way it happened when I was a kid, but that's a whole nother story. But it would be a great story. It would be a great story if I could recreate exactly what was going on because it was so many bands. I mean, you had people like Greg Filling Game walk around the street as a kid when I was a kid, right? Ray Parker was a little older than me. The Clue Brothers, Vaughn and Earl, both of them were there. Right? All of these people, plus you had Marcus Belgrave, uh, Harold McKinney, Sam Saunders, and a host of the older guys that knew all of these other guys. I remember we, we were down at Metro Arts Complex. The first time I ever met Freddie Hubbard in person, he was a good friend of Marcus Belgrave. So we all sitting in the bandstand, you know, rehearsing the big band. And Marcus, he had this rest. <clears throat> I got one of my friends here I want y'all to meet. You know, trumpet players with the raspy. <laughs> we all gonna like, who is this gonna be? And then all of a sudden, Freddie Hubbard steps out there and everybody, everybody in the trumpet section, everybody in the room went, wow, you know? So as usual, you know, kids are always gonna try to test the jazz musicians. So somebody said, would y'all play Flight of the Bumblebee? And Marcus and, and, and Freddie looked at each other, man, and they told Flight of the Bumblebee apart. We, all our ears just blew off our head like, wow. These guys could play Fight of the Bumblebee, and plus they could play all this jazz. And see, that was the marriage between jazz and classical. I mean, Winton was the later manifestation of that, right? Because Marcus knew Winton, put it to you like this. In that early band with Ray Charles, when Clark Terry, and there was another trumpet player sitting in that trumpet section, that other trumpet player was Marcus Belgrade. That's who I was hanging around with when I was 16 years old. Now, how lucky could you be, right, to meet these people who actually knew all of these people? And how I got invested, my mother, me and my friends, you know, we had formed these bands. And we were not your average kids, man. We were working gigs when we were 13 or 14 years old, playing Snake Bone by <laughs> Lou Donaldson, you know, So What, Lee Morgan, you know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, so what, Miles Davis and then uh, 
what was the tune that that, that we were playing back then? Because uh, Lee Morgan was doing a lot of work with Horace Silver, Art Blake, you know that them yeah, kind of people. Jazz, jazz messengers, jazz messengers yeah, among right. them. Yeah. So here we are, we 13, 14 years old. We playing this stuff, man. When you had James Brown, Sly and the Family Stone, all of this stuff is going on, and we playing jazz plus all of the other stuff. Right, so right. it was a real special time to be involved in music because it was wide open, man. It was just wide open. We played rock and roll, R&B, you name it, we played it. And the musical experience in itself, man, words really don't justify what we were exposed to. And, and I, I tell folks all the time, I say, you know, music took me places where I never would have been without music. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell this story and bring it together for the Detroit public school system. Because at the time, the Detroit public school system could compete anywhere in the country. It's, it, the city is nothing like it was when I was there as a kid. And uh, for me personally, if I had to, if, if when I die, God says, well, would you like to do that over again? I said, yeah, let's do it one more time. <laughs> you know, let's do that one more time, you know? And um, mm-hmm. it's so much stuff, man. Um, I can remember Anita Baker, story about Anita Baker. Anita Baker used to sing with this group called Chapter 8, right? And at this yes, time, uh, I had a band called Man's Transit. Chapter 8 was doing their own thing, but there was a group called Sea Wind back in the day. I don't know where you're familiar with this. Oh, my those gosh. Are- Jerry Hay and... and, and so now you know, uh, now you know who Parker. I'm talking about, okay? I know, I know so, who you're talking about, absolutely. So, so we were playing Sea Wind stuff, right? So they were working this club downtown called Studio 54. And the band I was in that time was one of the, the better bands I'd ever been in. As, as a matter of fact, it probably was one of the best all around bands I'd ever played in because it was stacked with a bunch of the young lions of the time, you know? And uh, they built uh, the Renaissance Center. I'm jumping around here. They built the Renaissance Center downtown. You know, that big GM project on East Jefferson down there. With all them towers, they call it the Rensen. We would have been the first band that ever played in that building if we hadn't broke up like two weeks before. <laughs> That's another story altogether. But in that in that time frame, uh, they they agreed to let us come in and set in one night. We weren't trying to take the gig. We were just trying to get a slot, you know. So we get down there and we start playing the sea wind. And the owner heard us playing. And he actually let them go and took us into the, the club after that. We weren't trying to cut them, you know, because we everybody knew everybody. We all grew up together, so it wasn't no big deal. But that's just one of the things that happened. And, uh, you know, being a band leader, being a musician, you know, I studied music uh, at the college level. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a musician who happens, my instrument happens to be drums. But... Uh, I've done from my musical skills. I I I, I ran the. Uh, I was a lead tech at my church for 17 years, and I I've, I've mixed people like John P. I mixed John P. Key twice. I've done the Wardlow Brothers, Shirley Caesar, 
um, uh, just a host of gospel artists. So from that musical experience, I was able to do all of this other stuff. And right now, I'm working on a project trying to hook Detroit up with Atlanta through this project Jam Kazam. And I'm I'm still working on that, but you know, um, that's basically where I'm at, man. And, and and like I said, I would really like to do more interviews with you guys so I could really get into the nuts and bolts of the time frames because um you know I, I was studying music in 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 in, in the music department at, at in high school, and I also um, once I graduated, I went on to college and studied music at the um, college level and took music theory and learned how to to read uh, uh, orchestral, uh, uh, the, the conductor's, the conductor's uh, sheet music. You know, the conductor has the right, great right. staff with everybody's part on it. So mm -hmm. that was one of the things I, that I really got out of college. What, as far as playing jazz was concerned, it wasn't much there. But what I did learn about form and function, uh, it allowed me to play a lot more music than I ever would have, would ever be able to play because once you understand form and function, about 99% of all the music is just a standard bar form, which is known as ABA. And all the other creative stuff is like probably less than 1% because we're talking about the real extract stuff. But most common music is gonna be in a standard bar, bar form. And um, those type of skills. Now I can, a guy could call me for a gig today and tell me the tunes. Gig time, we don't even have to rehearse them. I, I just show up knowing the tunes, and we've all played them, so we just jump up on stage and go for it, man. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens when you spend your life playing music your whole life. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I do pretty much the same thing. Same yeah. thing I wanted to find out from you, like, um, like right now, uh, what you're hearing now over the radio. Uh, or over wherever you're listening from platform, um, what do you what, what do you think that this particular trend of music is going? And I'm basically specifically uh, checking with you on the smooth jazz and as well as the uh, uh, mainstream uh, uh, radio programming and so forth. What do you think this music? Do you think that um, it'll ever be a time for this structure of music as what we grew up in is the same thing you were just talking about. Nowadays, the, the, the music is more of a vamp. Uh, it doesn't uh, have the different movements that we were accustomed to when we were coming up. So do you, right. think, do you think that it's, uh, there's, uh, that that's going to show up uh, in the very near future? Because I, me and Vaughn were talking about um, something. Uh, Vaughn, tell them what you uh, were talking about, about uh, music itself and who, and who uh, you were talking to about uh, <clears throat> yeah um, about there's, that. yeah there's a there's a gentleman that lives here in Atlanta and he's you know um, I originally before I made my step back into the broadcasting business and and being able to uh, be on the radio and play this great stuff uh, America's original art form and have a have a joy of playing it for the audience that that we you know that we play it for on the on the uh, on the radio. I this gentleman I met back in the day when I was doing a lot of theater, 
And um, it's funny, he, go by, he goes by the name of the jazz evangelist. Uh, and he's, he spent a lot of time in the music. Um, and his name is Scott Fugate. And Scott used to run a radio station up in uh, Gainesville, Georgia, at the, at the small, uh, I think it was a, a, a woman's college called Bruno College in Gainesville. And um, he, he's, he's very knowledgeable about the music and the history of it. And, and he's followed the trend for at least the last 45 years, I believe. And he's, he's well-versed at where he thinks where the music is headed. And he said it, it, it stands the reason that the current sound that's coming out of, out of the market, the jazz market, is probably gonna be around for the next 30, 35 years. Um, he said, no longer will you hear uh, music uh, unless it's some station that decides to continue on with playing the classics. But there'll, there'll never be another um, Herbie Hancock, uh, Miles Davis, Lee Morgan. Um, those cats, you know, the only thing we've got left of them are what their recordings are. Um, and because nobody, he, he really considers the fact that nobody's willing to actually sit down and listen to a guy play a five-minute solo anymore. That's, that's not going to happen. And, and, and the uh, recording industry is going to do the same thing. It's going to limit that. The only thing they're concentrating on is playing a melody and uh, a few licks in there, and the song is done. So, you know, it's, it's, he's very, like I said, um, I, I, I admire Scott. I, he's one of those guys that I can always chime in about, you know, the future of music and what he perceives uh, it, it, it's going to look like down the road. But um, the way Edwin was expressing it to you, where do you see it going? Do you think that that's the right track? Is it headed down that road where we're pretty much going to be, you know, left with what this thing is called smooth jazz for the next 30, 35 years? Well, um, from my perspective, and I'm sort of a backdoor music historian, right? right. Uh, I remember when the rap guys started doing their thing, right? And I'd be mm -hmm. sitting around listening to my, with, with, with my kids, right? And I said, that piece there comes from so-and-so-and-so, and so, go listen to the record. No, I didn't, Dad. Come back. They did take that from them, Dad. So I'm just letting you know how this works, okay? Right. There's nothing new <laughs> under the sun with music, okay? Yeah. It's only 12 notes. Yeah. Those 12 notes have been around for eons. Now, the only yeah. inflection point that we have is that we have electronic sounds now. But my personal opinion, and I could be wrong, there are some kids right now learning all of that stuff you're talking about, listening to Miles, listening to Bird. I seen a young kid on mm -hmm. Facebook the other day done played note for note, Charlie Parker solo. So now what does, what does that tell you? Uh, they I have agree. nowhere else to I go. I agree. They have nowhere else to go. That's they right. have nowhere else That's to true. go. Because the house 
has to have a foundation. Now you can modernize it, but you still got to pour the concrete, right? Mm -hmm. So if music is going to be be remain a human flesh endeavor, because we're going to need that. The problem wow. is we have allowed computers to dictate our humanity. Mm. Only thing that will mm. stop us from having another Lee Morgan, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane is that they figure a computer to do that. And that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. That's not, going to, not happen. going to happen. Because mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the computer is just an extension of man's own imagination. That's all it is. It can never mm -hmm. be more than that. Artificial intelligence. We have that now. It's called algorithms. Yeah. It's not thinking. It's just processing numbers. It's not human. So music is the truest expression of human emotion. And as long as we feel, there's always going to be the possibility we'll get another mind. We'll get another dizzy. Mm -hmm. Because without that, humanity will die. That's my own opinion. Right. Now, that's, that's yeah. you're, saying, you're saying the same thing that uh, me and Vaughn has had this conversation before. Uh, ever so many decades, there are going to be uh, a lot of musicians. Like you say, you saw the young kids doing Charlie Parker stuff, note for note. That, that, that's going to happen. It, it has always happened. What we really need at this point is a new innovator. The innovation has not changed since Charlie Parker and Coltrane and Miles. So when there's a, someone comes up, a, a whole different innovator, that actually takes the music into a whole different direction. In other words, that's where you get your evolution. Because oh. when, kids, when kids grasp that stuff at a very early age, those kids are like sponges anyway. Yeah. Uh, they're going to they're gonna grasp what is already there. Now, depending on what they decide to do with it, once they get older, you know what I'm saying, are they going to know to take it to another level? Or are they going to look at that and say, okay, I can get through this because this is some, some difficult stuff and it took a lot of people a long time to get to this level. I'm comfortable here. Problem is, Right, like right now, there is another form of music that is not as deep or, or is not as innovative as that, that stuff. And that's what's making a lot of people a lot of money right now. That's very super sim simple stuff. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to be a music student. Rappers are not music students in college. No. They, you know, they picked up a machine and find out that they can hit, hit a button. and, and Next thing you know, they're on, on, on chart. Now they got, now they're millionaires. Okay, then, you see what I'm saying? It pushes that evolution of the live musician back, you know, where it really should continuously evolve. It should move forward, you know. But until society accepts it again, uh, it's going to pretty much, like you said, be with us. Um, and I'm talking about the, the, the current trend, trend of jazz. It's going to be with us. Well, about at least the next 20 or 30 years. Right? Well, yep. But but that's because smooth jazz is just an extension of R&B, though. Yeah, that's you, all. You, yeah, 
We've, yeah, that's, I mean, all that's, that's all it is. Exactly. I mean, look, <laughs> that's look, all it is. And, 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 and what I'm about to say is, is that I'm a jazz historian, okay? I went all the way back in my studies when I was growing up. I'm a young man doing all of this stuff. And then we talk about Miles, but let's, let's, let's pick Miles, who spanned the music from the, what, early the 40s. 50s all the way up till he died, right? Really, it was the 40s, right? Because he was like playing with, with, with Parker for Younger a while, people. wasn't he? Younger people. His, his whole, he went from playing with all the old guys, and then he kept a constant flow of younger people. Art Blakey did the right, exactly. same thing. Same the thing. same thing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And because of that, all of the stuff that is trending now, the only thing that changes when you've got the rap boys with the computers and they sync tracks, and that's why the music has no soul because it's all looped in. It has no musical fundamentals involved. It's all technology involved. And one thing we can count on about human beings, we are social and emotional creatures. And as long as we are spiritual and social and emotional creatures, we will always have that place for something the next wave. What you're seeing now is the commercialization of the art form. But it's not what it was when you, you, me, and, and Edwin was growing up. But you had people like Winton, who's at, 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 at uh, the Lincoln Center. You know, he's still doing it. There are, when my daughter was in high school, I was in an after-school music program. It was called Stillwater's Youth Symphonia. I enrolled my daughter into that. I walked in there. There was a bunch of families in there, but they had no concept of what music was really all about, right? And they looked at me, who is this guy? So I walked in and said, well, uh, what are y'all gonna do with these kids? All y'all doing is just teaching them some songs. Y'all ain't teaching them nothing about, nothing about music. How about we design a music theory class for them? By the time I left there, I took a 10-piece chamber orchestra. We had, at, the, at its peak, we had 90 students, full orchestra. Took them to New York, took them to LA. Went out there to LA, and of course, you know, anybody from the South, you know, they think everybody in Georgia is just country bumpkin and we don't know nothing, right? So. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I get out there. And I'm looking around because it, 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 you know anything about NAM, the National Organization of Negro Musicians? That one yeah. of the oldest classical, uh, black classical musicians organization who, who does William Grant Steele. And I'll see, you know, I know what I'm talking about. Real, William Grant Steele mm -hmm. was the, is, is, is high on that list. And one of the first people that I was telling you about, Harold McKinney, who was my mentor. He wrote 19 classical compositions, right? He told me this. Mm. And when I took those kids to NAM, I opened, I looked at the cover of the program and there was Harold's face. And then it clicked on me. I said, that's right. Harold told me he had wrote 19 classical pieces. You see what I'm saying? And I'm wow. going like, wow. wow. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this guy, the same guy who saw my talent 
And when I moved from Detroit and moved down here and started over, my brother lived down the block from him. And me and my brother could almost pass for 20. Every time he saw my brother, he say, he, my brother would tell me, say, he'd come up to me, hey, Vic, you still playing the drums? And he'd say, no, no, no. Yeah, he's still playing the drum, but I'm not Vic, okay? <laughs> and, you know, and I, it really didn't dawn on me why, when I was a kid, that he had that interest. Because, see, their business was, okay, they had a bunch of kids around him, right? But they were going through and seeing who really had the skill. I was so dumb and naive, man. I thought I couldn't play worth a lick. But all the time, they sizing me up, pulling me off to the side. Because, you know, when you when you when when everybody's competing, you know, music is very competitive and it can be cruel. You know what I'm saying? You you get on stage oh, yeah. and thinking you can play, right? And somebody call that tune that you don't know, boy, they will abuse you fast. You know what I'm saying? And what and I learned that before I ever did a jam session, there's a place that was a place in Detroit, Ernie Rogers, great saxophone player arrangers in the city of Detroit. His family had this place called a Rapper House. The Rapper House was when Marcus and them cats go play their regular paying gigs. Then when they get off work, they go on there and then they might be in a quartet and be playing all night. You know what I'm saying? Because on that gig, they had to play what the gig called for, when they went to jam, they played what they, and see, that's where most of that creative stuff came out of. As a matter of fact, I was told by some inside sources said before John Coltrane ever recorded Giant Steps, he had rehearsed that tune for over 10,000 hours before he recorded. Wow. Now, wow. you can't get that kind of information from somebody who didn't know Train. You know what I'm saying? And I, I know y'all both saw that in the pursuit of a perfection, that documentary they did yeah. on Cold Train. Yeah, exactly. Right. The pursuit of and, train. Yeah. 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 And I came up with that same notion. It wasn't about the money. It was about how good could I be? You see, that's the freedom. Music will allow you to push yourself to your maximum extension. But you got to get away from the money first, because first of all, you have to master your instrument in order to play jazz. That's why everybody's taking the shortcuts. They don't want to work that hard no more, man. But if you look at the history of music, all breakthroughs come out of that. All of them. Every great musician that we've ever had had that type of mentality. The money was fine, but it was more about the music. That's what drove Charlie Parker. That's what's going to drive the next, the next young kid. And as long as that desire to be excellent is out here, there's going to be a kid that's going to pick it up. So I, you know, it don't look that way now, but from, from all of my years of playing, and what really messes the young kids up, you know, they, they try to get by me with what they be talking about, right? And then I can tell them what they're talking about and then tell them where it came from. And then they, it blows their mind when I say, that's where that comes from. Oh, it didn't come from there? Yes, it did. Go listen to that music. See, because yeah. they only know 10-year cycles. You know, the average kid out here can't get past 10 years. And once they discover it, and I will say this. Now, some folks going to hate me for this. I tell you who are really picking up on this stuff is white kids. Because 
they see the value in playing instruments. And all our kids are seeing now is rappers who have no instruments. So everybody's taking the easy way out to make a million dollars because that's all that is. Right. Playing an instrument is way too hard. Well, Vic, one of the reasons why is uh, simply because, like going back to when we were in school, uh, that opportunity was presented to you through public school. No? Absolutely. So that's another subject. That's another subject. Yeah, your exposure uh, to an instrument was was a was something that we we definitely it was put on us whether we wanted to do it or not. Now, we, whether we accepted it or not, that's another thing. But the thing is, all those that I know that went through public school and were exposed to instruments have a better appreciation for live music. Whereas, like now, uh, it's not there. You don't have the exposure. That's why it's taken taking so long to get. And, and when they right, and when they when they took uh, the music departments out of public school. But see, the problem with that was that's why we are now uh, not in the position that we were because music. Um, kids who study music scored 10 points higher than the other students. Exactly. That was proven, that was proven when we were in school. That's right. And the reason why they stopped that was the fact that the record companies got tired of dealing with creative black people and they wanted to take control of the medium. Well, one of the other reasons was wow. that was a way out for a lot of underserved black kids that came out of a lot of- Absolutely. And it played absolutely, yeah. Way out. That was a college scholarship right there. You know what I'm saying? And, wait a minute. Oh, now, you're, now, you're preaching now. Yeah. Now, now we get to the brunt of it, because yeah, you know, you you go back to the the the, the, the Brown versus the Board of Education uh, decision. What that said was, right. It's all right to have segregated schools, but you can't have segregated texts. Right. We got to have the same yeah. text as the white kids to compete. And for years, we did that. Then in 1965, when we got the, 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 the voting rights and all that other stuff, by the time we got out of high school, we had more black males in college than we did in jail. Mm -hmm. So look, if you take it through the frame of the politics of it, because one thing that white people had a problem with, their kids were modeling people like Lil Richard. You understand what I'm saying? They were modeling people like, like John Coltrane. They couldn't have that, man. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Now, one more thing yeah. before we go, because we got to go. Is there any, um, any way that if people want to contact you or get in touch with you, is there any way they can, they can do that? Do you have a web? platform or what so I have a I have a I have a I have a, a YouTube channel. Okay. And and it's it it's it's you just punch my name in on YouTube and it's not finished yet. But uh this project that I'm working on is what I call the uh, uh I'm designing a, a project where a young professional musician won't be trapped into just playing one type of gig and then you can set up his studio in the basement where he can challenge himself to play all the live music that he needs to play and being able to get into a, a somebody might call you for a gig on a Monday. You got 10 tunes to learn by Friday. Um, training yourself how to, once you listen to enough music, you can, as a drummer, okay, I'm going to do a phrase, right? 
and drummers have to flip the phrase when you go to the next part of the song, right? So the 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 release of relaxation and tension in the chordal structure of a tune will give you all of the necessary stuff in your ears to automatically respond to that. And I've played enough music, and I'm going to talk about being the professional musician who don't limit himself to what type of gig he playing, being able to play jazz, rock and roll, whatever it needs to be played live. See, and they're talking about putting music education in the new, new package they just did. You want to know why they're doing that? Because there was a reason for humanities. When you had humanities, people, human beings learned how to respect things other than themselves. Mm. So if you look at education as, as a whole, the Romans, the Greeks knew this. They took uh, gladiators and taught them how to sing and dance and all that stuff, made them better gladiators, okay? Even they knew that. But in America, it got to the point where you know, the music gave us way too much power. I guess to just put it on the table because we became the quintessential face of America. From Louis Armstrong to now, everybody loves American culture. And American culture came out of the bowels of slave ships. But we, what we're going to do is, um, uh, because we got to wrap it up pretty right now. Uh, like I said, we can talk about this all day. Yeah, I know you can. <laughs> Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm like, you are, let me tell you something. <laughs> um, brother, you're dropping some gems right now. That's all I got to say. You are dropping some gems today. Oh, my God. Well, gosh. you know, I've it, been you know, scared to. But you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now. You are speaking the truth, you know, and it's, it's just like I tell Edwin. And the beauty of this, of what Edwin does with, with Yes Jazz Matters and all the musicians and all of the experts of, of this great art form, when you all speak, oh my gosh, there's so much wealth. I mean, you can't buy this. I mean, you can't put a price on this. You just can't. And I'm just sitting here and, you know, if, if I never picked up a trombone, if I was never at in public schools, could I, did I was interested in playing music, and later on transferred the recorder to the trombone, I wouldn't be sitting here in this chair right now. Absolutely. To you. Absolutely. You know, because it changed my it changed my whole projection. I mean, my my path had had altered it altered it totally, you know. And so it's just it's always been in me. And I'm here to preserve it. And 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 I'm an advocate for bringing it back into its 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 rightful place where it belongs absolutely you know, and it and just running into you know you know it's like edwin is just like the the best mentor i have at this age i could ever have you know it's just the beauty of of, of this knowledge that i've obtained and where it's taken me right now my passion is so hot you know and so you know when i get around cats like yourself uh, Mr. Bowen and Edwin and 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 uh, uh, Joe Jennings and all of these great oh, legendary voices in this some of the neighborhood folks. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> well, Joe, Joe Jennings is the South equivalent of a Marcus Belgrade. Gotcha. Well, Joe, yeah, Joe's on another level. Period. Now, well, you know, I I played with a lot of his students well, in this town. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I played with him. 
a long time. But uh, I'll go ahead and let them know where they can get you. Uh, uh, well, you know, you can, you, can, you, I, I, you can go to my YouTube channel, but it's not much on there. But I got a, 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 Gmail, a Gmail account. It's VicBowenDrum at Gmail.com. Okay. I, uh, go ahead uh, and get it. Bond, let them know where you are. Yeah, yeah, I'm at jazzbeatsradio.com. Uh, you can also find me at my Instagram page, which is Vaughn Coulter. And also, I have a YouTube page. It's called Soulscapes on Jazz Beats Radio. And that's the name of my show for Jazz Beats Radio. It's called Soulscapes. And, uh, okay. I live, by that, I, I live by that motto, jazz ain't nothing but soul. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual connection. Okay, and you can get me uh, at yesjazzmatters.org, and you can go and check out what we are doing over at Jazz Matters. Uh, like I said, once you go over there, definitely go to the uh, donate page and so forth, and go and check us out, and you'll see what we got coming up. All right, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks a lot, Vic. And we'll get back at this. This will be a, there will be a second chapter. Thank you, my brother, because I know I wasn't going to be able to do it now. <laughs> All right, hey, gentlemen, nice to meet you guys. All of us are off cut of the same cloth, and I like to close and say this. I know in my bones, as long as I'm still playing jazz, there's going to be some kid out there that's going to do exactly what I've done. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay. All right, brothers, be blessed. All right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.